Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. Amen. We turn again this morning to God's Word. It's a joy to turn to 1 Thessalonians again. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And if you've been following with us, uh, we are at a, a change in topic in this book. We were talking over the last couple of weeks about the topic of sanctification. As we heard God discussing the importance of sanctification, the importance of our daily decisions of obedience to Christ, talking about the importance of self-control with our bodies and of brotherly love to one another. But now we have a switch in verses 13 to 18 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And the opening words of these verses are, uh, appear to, to indicate, based on Paul's response, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, that Timothy has either brought back a question to Paul that the Thessalonians were wrestling through, or Timothy's reported that the Thessalonians were not thinking or acting correctly in, in some way, and so Paul believes he needs to respond to this issue. And we don't know exactly what the concern was, but in some way, Whatever it was, it was leading the Thessalonians to grieve without hope for those who had died, even those who had trusted Christ. And so Paul's going to address this, and he responds here with an application of the gospel that gives one of the strongest declarations of comfort and hope that I can think of in the New Testament to those who are grieving the death of a believer. Let's look at God's Word together. Let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Father, how I thank you for your word. I thank you for speaking by your spirit these words through Paul and now speaking them to us. I pray that you would encourage and comfort our hearts today through Christ and for Christ's sake. Amen. Back in the month of March when the coronavirus was slowly inching its way into our lives, one of our members, uh, Peggy Stoller, passed away. Many of you knew Peggy. You knew the hardships that she persevered through in life by faith. And Peggy's family was unable to hold a regular service here because of, of the time, but we did have a, a small family service for Peggy back in March. And, 
As part of her request, Peggy asked that we would read this passage from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. She asked that we would read these words with her family. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Our congregation is a congregation who has known grief. I've been preaching to empty pews for the last two months, but it only took me a matter of minutes to think through our congregation and think through family after family who has grieved the loss of a family member in an unexpected or untimely way. Those who have lost parents, those who have lost children, siblings, and others who were dear to them. And yet while we're a congregation who is well acquainted with grief, this passage reminds us that thanks to Christ, we are also a congregation who has strong resurrection, comfort, and hope. And that comfort and hope is the main point of this passage. And I would summarize the main point today this way. Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection to be with the Lord forever. Therefore, in the face of the death of a believer we grieve with hope. Now, as we look at this, Paul declares, I think, two things in this passage. He first shares the foundation of our hope, and then he describes a description or shares a description of our hope. And I want to look at each of those this morning. Let's begin with verses 13 through 15. Look closely at these verses as Paul lays out the foundation of our hope. Paul urges the Thessalonians that as believers in Jesus, there is no reason for us to grieve without hope. Now, I think it's important for us to note here that the difference between believers and unbelievers is not that one grieves and the other doesn't. In the face of death, there is grief. Death, after all, is the result of the curse. Death is separation and loss and pain. Death is the most tangible reminder that God's creation has been rent by sin and all of the suffering that comes with that is present. I think of Jesus who himself came to Bethany to see Mary and Martha when their brother, his friend Lazarus, died. And as Jesus came and met with them, Jesus wept over the death of Lazarus. And yet, I think we see this, we know this instinctively. Many commentators have pointed out the difference between Paul's words here and the letter of a second century Egyptian who is trying to comfort her friends in the face of the death of their son. This second century Egyptian, whose name is Irene, writes to her friends, and Irene shares sadness at the loss of her son, and then she concludes her letter this way. She says, against such things, death, we can do nothing. So comfort one another. For an Egyptian, comforting one another was a hug you give because there's nothing else you can do. For Paul, Comfort is something we give because there is hope in Jesus Christ. Many of you know the difference very well because you've attended funerals for believers and you've attended funerals for unbelievers, and the difference is palpable. But Paul does not just say that Christians have hope. He doesn't just state that Christians should grieve with hope. In verse 14, in verse 14, we have one of the most simple and straightforward statements of gospel hope in the New Testament. Paul declares here the foundation of our hope, and he says it this way. You see it there in verse 14. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And Paul's statement is this. Faith in Christ 
unites us to Jesus. Think of the images that the the New Testament uses. Christ is the vine, we are the branches. Christ is the head, we are the body. Faith unites us to Jesus so that what is true of Christ becomes true of us. If the vine dies, the branch dies. But if the vine lives, the branch lives. This is Paul's statement. Scripture says it this way, since Jesus died, those who are united to Jesus by faith have also died to sin. In our union with Jesus, we no longer face eternal punishment. Those who have died with Christ are now forgiven and accepted as righteous in God's sight. Why? Because Jesus is accepted as righteous in God's sight. And those of us who are united to him by faith can also be accepted as righteous in his sight. Since Jesus rose from the grave, conquering death. We who have put our faith in him will also rise from the dead. Author Rory Shiner compares our union with Christ to flying on an airplane. Think of it this way. Let's suppose you want to fly to the city of London. So you go to the airport and lo and behold, there is an airplane flying to London. And right now you could probably get a flight for a hundred bucks to London. Now's the time if you want to fly. But what do you need to do? What relationship do you need to have with that airplane in order to get to London? Do you need to believe that that plane is going to London? Well, that's a starting place, but you can believe that plane's going to London all day and still be stuck in the terminal. Mere intellectual assent is not what is needed. Do you need to be inspired by the example of the plane in order to be like the plane? And you have sort of the image of running down the runway. No, of course not. What you need is to be in the plane. You need to entrust yourself to the plane so that what happens to the plane happens to you. Where the plane goes, you go. And so all over the New Testament, we hear Paul say, believers are in Christ. Those who have put their faith in him are in Christ. When we are in him, what happens to Christ happens to us. Romans 6, 5 puts it this way. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Do we want to know what our hope is? Do we want to know what resurrection will be like for you and I? Look to Jesus. If we are united to him by faith, what happened to him is what will happen to us. And this means, of course, that a Christian's hope is not a vague sort of hopeful feeling that things will turn out well for us. No, we have a solid guarantee of what will happen to us in the future because of what has happened to Jesus in history. When it has happened to him and we are united to him by faith, our hope is certain. That is the foundation of our hope. In verse 15, Paul adds further certainty to this truth, though. You see there in verse 15, he adds yet another support beam to our hope, if you will, when he declares this. He says, this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, if the fact of Jesus' resurrection is not enough to guarantee our hope, Paul says the Lord himself has given us his word. The Lord himself has promised and declared that God will raise those who have died in Christ when Jesus comes. What greater hope could we have? But I want you to follow Paul's logic here. Because Paul has declared a precious theological truth. By faith we are united to Jesus. 
so that when he, like he has been raised, we too will be raised. But Paul gives this not as just a theological truth to hang out there. This theological truth gives solid comfort and hope. This theological truth is the reason we can have hope. Cameron Cole is a youth and families pastor in Alabama. And he demonstrates how Paul's words give us hope. He describes the most wonderful joy a parent could have. He was playing with Legos with his young son. led to a conversation about Jesus and what Jesus had done. They discussed sin. They discussed Christ. And at the end of their time, his young son said, Jesus died for my sins. He is my Savior. But that night, Cameron's young son died in his sleep. It was a medical mystery. No one knew why he had passed away. And in his book, Cameron said this. He said, Lauren, Christ is risen from the dead. There lies the most significant sentence of my life. It was the first sentence I uttered when my, fight, my wife delivered the crushing news that my son had died. It's the key sentence underlying your hope and survival in the midst of your worst. In fact, it's the sentence on which the entire world hinges. Cameron and his wife applied this truth in their Facebook post the next day. They said, We are profoundly and devastatingly sad. We will grieve the loss of our sweet boy for the rest of our lives. But we can live with hope, peace, and gratitude, knowing that the promises of the gospel are true, and knowing that Christ is indeed risen from the dead. Our God lost his son to death, and so have we. But our God's son was raised from the dead, and so is ours. All thanks be to Christ. See, this is the hope. This is the comfort. This is the theological truth that gives us precious and solid guarantee of resurrection that doesn't cancel grief, but it infuses it with hope and joy in our Savior. Maybe I could pause to just note how this brings the importance of Christ to the forefront. Maybe some of you are listening this morning And you are not sure if you feel confident about this hope this morning. And for some of you, you have put your faith in Christ and yet you still tremble with anxiety and and doubts about the strength of your confidence from moment to moment. And you need to hear that this hope does not depend upon the strength of your feelings of confidence. This hope does not depend about whether you still have anxieties or, or anxious thoughts. It depends on the work of Christ on our behalf. And the work of Christ depends only on our trust in him, even trust the size of a mustard seed. Our call is to entrust ourselves to Christ, whose work on our behalf gives us this solid hope. Maybe there's others listening here this morning, though. Maybe there's others who need to hear that this hope comes only through faith in Jesus. Maybe some of you listening have taken for granted that God saves all good people, or at least those who are doing their best. Or maybe Maybe you assume that God is in the business of meeting our needs and making sure things work out okay for us. Or maybe you assume that we don't really have much interest in God, but I'm along for the ride and doing my best. If that's where you are, can I plead with you to consider the fact that Jesus Christ is coming? That he is coming back? 
Can I plead with you to consider that hope does not come through realizing your identity or fulfilling your dreams or leading the life or meeting the emotional needs you have? None of that brings hope. Hope comes through faith in Jesus' death and resurrection for you. At stake is life in solid hope or death and punishment. So I pray that you would put your faith in such a wonderful Savior. So here we have in these first verses this solid foundation of our hope. Christ's resurrection guarantees the resurrection of all who have put their faith in him so that we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, in the face of death, we grieve with hope. Look then to verses 16 through 18, because here we see Paul describe our hope. What exactly will it be like when Jesus comes again? What will this resurrection hope be like? Well, Paul gives us some details in verses 16 through 18. And Paul begins in verse 16 by describing Jesus' return. He says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. The emphasis here is that Jesus' return will be both personal and authoritative. Jesus himself will return. Jesus doesn't just send a delegation of angels to kind of round up his people. No, Jesus himself returns to his creation. He himself will descend to get his sheep so that we will dwell with him forever. And when he comes, he comes with the authoritative shout of command, the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. This picture of the the blast of the trumpet of God and the shout of command is used all throughout Scripture to indicate the presence of God. You might remember back in Exodus 19, when God descends upon Mount Sinai to meet with his people, Israel, there are thunder, lightning, smoke, and a very loud trumpet blast. It's the trumpet of God. Or maybe you think of Psalm 47, Psalm 47, 5, which talks about the blast of the trumpet and the presence of God. Or maybe you think of Matthew 24, which describes the return of the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. You see, this is the consistent imagery for the return of the presence of God to be with his people. I think of this cry of command and I think of Jesus himself in John chapter 11. In John 11, Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus. You remember that Lazarus has died And Jesus says, take away the stone. And Jesus cries out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And at that cry of command, Lazarus rises from the dead and comes forth. And I imagine here in 1 Thessalonians 4, this picture of Jesus descending and issuing that loud cry now on a cosmic scale. Believer, come out so that every grave and every tomb of every believing son and daughter of Jesus comes forth in resurrection to be with their Savior. That's the first thing that we hear. The second thing we hear is when Jesus returns, the dead in Christ will rise first. And when it says the dead will be raised first, Paul is noting that the resurrection of those who have died will occur immediately prior to this great gathering of God's people so that those who have died in Christ will not miss out on any of the glory or the return of Jesus, but will be raised first to participate in it. Now, some, just a couple of details that we should point out here. First, we, we note Paul's language is that uh, they will be raised, those who have fallen asleep 
will be raised at his coming again. And I think it's important for us to note that this is not indicating that those who died are just asleep and and are not with the Lord. We know for a fact from Scripture that when a believer dies, their soul immediately goes to be in the presence of God. We know this from the thief on the cross where Jesus says, "'Today you will be with me in paradise.'" But our hope is not just that our souls would be in Jesus' presence. That's our temporary hope, but that's not our final hope. Throughout Scripture, we hear that our eternal hope is bodily resurrection, so that we will dwell bodily with the Lord in the new heavens and the new earth forever. Our hope is this perfection, this culmination of what God intended for mankind from the beginning. God dwelling with his people in his land forever. We have a hope of death being conquered. We have a hope that the splintering of body and soul will be overcome so that we are transformed into the glorious and imperishable bodies that the Lord has prepared for us so that we would dwell and reign with Jesus in new creation forever. That's our hope. And that's hope to get you up in the morning, isn't it? What a great hope we have in Jesus. So the dead in Christ are raised first in bodily resurrection. Then in verse 17, we hear, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Here, Paul describes the great assembly of all God's people to be with him as he returns to earth in power and great glory. Perhaps the most interesting question, of course, that's raised by this verse is the question of the rapture. Many of you know that the rapture is an idea that's popularized by books such as the Left Behind series, that Christ will actually return twice, once to get believers who he will rapture out of this earth, and then again later after a tribulation to judge all mankind. And authors like Hal Lindsley have have popularized this with images of, of a quarterback who's about to score the winning goal for their team. Suddenly, zap, he's gone. And nowhere, no one knows where he's gone. Um, and this is a, a picture of, of the, the rapture. And this verse, 1 Thessalonians 4.17, is the key passage that's used to support this among one or two others. Specifically because it only talks about believers and says that when Jesus comes, believers in Christ will be raised first. And it only talks about believers here. And so this verse is, is a key supporting verse. So I think it's important for us to understand several problems with understanding this passage this way and why we do not believe that this passage or any other for that matter teaches uh, a rapture as a separate return of Christ. First, we see very clearly the reason why this passage only talks about believers and that's because Paul is answering a question about what will happen to believers when Jesus comes again. That's the context. Paul has been asked, what happens to believers who have died when Jesus comes again? And so Paul answers that question. He's he's answering a question about what happens to believers. And that's why in this context, he doesn't talk about the judgment of all of creation, although he will get to that in the coming verses in chapter 5. But second, this is perhaps uh, the most important thing, this passage makes it abundantly clear, as does every other passage in the New Testament, that Christ's return is the opposite of secret or puzzling. No one is going to be left on earth thinking, boy, I wonder what just happened there. Jesus himself will descend with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the blast of the trumpet of God, and power and great glory. Christ's return will be the most glorious moment in all of history. 
as God's people rejoice in the return of their Savior. And yet those who have not entrusted their lives to him, with them there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, according to Scripture. Well, this passage is not talking about a rapture. It's better to read this passage and this verse the way the Thessalonians almost certainly did. Because in the first century, if an emperor or a king were to return to a city or make a visit to a city, particularly if he was returning after a victorious military campaign, what would happen is that he would come, he would approach the city with a trumpet blast, with an announcement of his arrival, and all of his supporters would come out from the city to meet him, and they would accompany him on his way back into the city, while those who had opposed him would wait in the city for judgment. That's the picture that we have here in this passage. When the curtain of this world is pulled back, when Jesus arrives with a cry of command, surrounded by the clouds of God's glory, all believers, beginning with those who have died in Christ, who rise first, will flock to accompany him in his return to his redeemed creation. What a joyous occasion that will be. And that leads to Paul's final point, that at Christ's return, Believers will be reunited with each other and with Christ. You see that in Paul's words in verse 17. He says, We who are left alive until his return will be caught up together with the resurrected believers to meet the Lord. And so we will always be with the Lord forever. Now there's two widths in this verse that we need to pay attention to. First, we will be caught up with all of our fellow believers And then we will always be with the Lord. And of course, the great hope, the pinnacle climax hope of all of our expectations is that we will be with the Lord forever. To be with Jesus. To be with the one who pursued us through death. To be with the one who has rescued us. To be welcomed by him, to be with him, and to reign with him forever. That is our great hope and our great joy. But even as that is our great focal point, we should not miss the other with. This is not just about us individually worshiping God forever. We will be brought together with all of God's people through all of time, through all of creation. And so it's not inappropriate for us to emphasize that we will be with those who are raised from the dead. In fact, one of the joys of heaven, as every tear is wiped away and every sadness is undone by the return of Jesus, one of the great joys will be a perfected unity and fellowship that we will have with all of God's people as we worship him and delight in our king together and forever. A reunion with the Lord and with all his people at his return. Well, after giving us a foundation for our hope, our union with Christ, that as he has been raised, so we have a guarantee of being raised, After giving us a description of these events, Paul ends with these words in verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And we will end with this also, that we should encourage one another with these words. Well, how exactly should we encourage one another with these words? First, we should encourage one another with these words in the face of grief. Now, I realize that we need to be careful with this. In the immediate aftermath of grief, the last thing we should do is go up to a person and say, hey, don't worry, you're going to be in heaven with them. That's, that's not what this verse means. But we do say, we do say 
that as we walk with one another through grief and loss, as we seek to support one another in walking through life in the face of grief and suffering, it's these truths, it's these truths of resurrection hope that ground our assurance that we encourage one another with as God's people. So we encourage one another with these words in the face of grief. But we should also encourage one another with these words as we seek to live as followers of Christ. Because the way we live right now should be motivated by our expectation of that cry of command that is coming. By the expectation that Jesus is coming back. It should be these words, we should encourage one another with these words because they are a motivation for our holiness. When we think about the return of Christ, that encourages us to live in godliness and obedience. Think of Second Peter chapter 3, where Peter says, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? He is coming. Encourage one another with that, that we might live in godliness and obedience to him. These words are also a motivation to joy. See, Christ's return is a certainty. It is a guarantee for us. And the delay over the last 2,000 years does not diminish our joy or our hope. It increases our expectation. Because at his return, all sadness and all the curse will be undone as Jesus' work is brought to its conclusion. And so these words give us joy in our hope. And lastly, these words, we encourage one another with these words because they are a motivation to live with confident hope. See, the way we live right now should reflect the fact that the sting of death is gone. The way we live right now should reflect the fact that we can live our daily lives not in the fear of what might happen, but in the confident trust that whatever happens, we know it ends with resurrection. Jesus has been raised again. And so we are guaranteed resurrection and eternity with the Lord. And we can live our daily lives with that confident courage and hope. Brothers and sisters, we're awaiting this resurrection morning. As we wait, may we encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. Father, how I thank you for your work in Jesus Christ. How I thank you that your son died and was risen so that as we put our faith in him, we are united to him. He now is our head and we are the body. He is the vine, we are the branches so that what happens to him will happen to us. What a confident guarantee of resurrection hope. Would that encourage us, Father, in our grieving? Would it encourage us in our living to the glory of our God? And we pray along with Paul, Jesus, come quickly. We look forward to that day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.